Good morning. If you're a kid ages three years to pre-K, you can be dismissed to Holy Cross Kids. Also, if you're new to Holy Cross, we want to remind you that immediately after the service this morning, uh, we would love 15 minutes of your time in room 100. We're just going to real quickly tell you a really little bit about Holy Cross and just lay out a few next steps for you uh, so you can learn more about us, so we can get to know you a little bit better. Two dates uh, to keep on your calendar if you're new to Holy Cross, uh, February 10th. We're having our Discover Holy Cross um, event. We kind of do it like cocktail party style. So uh, we get a little dressed up and just enjoy each other's company. It's a good time to get to know other folks who are new to the church. And also, it's a little, it's an evening, so you spend an hour and a half or two hours there just uh, so you get to know some other folks. And also, it gives you a chance to ask uh, any questions you want to about Holy Cross and put um, Rick on the spot and, you know, try to come up with a really awkward question for him. Also, uh, I also want to note and reiterate um, the service teams that we just had up front here, almost none of them uh, require you to be a member at Holy Cross. And being on a service team is a great way to get to know other people. You would be surprised how well you get to know somebody setting up chairs or sitting with them in the nursery or something like that. So I would encourage you to... To think about those is actually a way of getting more involved and learning more about us. Uh, We're going to be reading this morning from 1 John chapter 2, so please turn there. It's all the way at the back of your Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, at our Connect table in the back, we have several Bibles that we would love for you to pick up. You can pick it up now. You can get one before you leave at the end of the service. Uh, That's the Word of God. We think it's really important uh, that you have that, and so that's our gift to you. If you're able, please stand as we read in honor of God's word. These are the words of John. He is writing to a group of Christians in the first century. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which we walked. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. You tell us that your word does not return to you void. And so we ask that that would be true this morning. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So disclaimer right off the bat, depending on what your background is, you just heard six verses that said a lot about sin 
and said a lot about commandments. And you might already be shutting your brain off and going, this is exactly what I expected from church. All they talk about is sin and the things that you should and should not do. So bear with us. Okay, so having said that, um, in 1862, this 60-year-old French guy wrote an epic story about love, about justice, about injustice, about heroism. And since he wrote it, it's pretty much a blockbuster from, from day one, and scholars have regarded it as kind of this amazing commentary on social justice at the time. Uh, Students have feared it as a 1,200-page doorstop. And since its publication, it's been done multiple times as play, as musicals, and in most recently, uh, 2012, a movie starring Anne Hathaway, Hugh Jackman, and Russell Crowe. Hugh Jackman, um, I've, I've heard, almost didn't take the role when he found out he couldn't wear... Um, extendable metal fingers um, for you X-Men fans out there. Uh, But whether you fear Les Mis or whether you revere Les Mis, it's a story that continues to resonate deeply. It's a message that resonates deeply with anyone who encounters it. And because of time constraints, I'm not going to try to summarize all 1,200 pages this morning. You're welcome. But the story centers around this guy named Jean Valjean, and he's a convict. And at the beginning of the story, we meet him. He's just been released from prison, and he's spending the night with an elderly bishop. And the bishop has just been excessively kind to him, even knowing that he's this recently released convict. But, but despite his, his kindness, uh, Valjean gets up in the middle of the night, and he almost kills the bishop, decides not to, But instead, he runs away from the bishop's house with a bag full of the bishop's silver. Okay? And then the next morning, the bishop wakes up. He realizes, my silver is gone. And he's sitting there eating breakfast when there's a knock at the door. And it's policemen. And they've got Valjean by the scruff of the neck. Valjean's got the bag of silver. They've caught him red-handed. And Valjean, he's downcast because he knows I've been caught. I'm going to go back to prison. Um, This is another 19 years of hard labor for me. But then the bishop, in front of the policeman, says this to Valjean. He says, I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that I gave you the silver candlesticks as well? You forgot to take them with you. And with that, Valjean is once again free. He's not going back to prison. And in fact, he's not only going back to prison, he's being freed with a sack full of silver and silver that he stole and then more silver that was given to him. And so it, it shakes him. It shakes him to his core, and he's, he's radically changed. He changes everything. He changes his name. He changes his identity. And he moves to a different town, and he starts a factory a button factory, and he's tremendously successful, and he uses the money to start the factory. He uses the money from the silver to start the factory, and hundreds of people in this town work in the factory, and the whole town flourishes because Valjean is a changed person 
And he's a changed person because he has encountered just excessive forgiveness and excessive generosity. So when we look at 1 John chapter 2, the first six verses, we see some of those same themes. And 1 John is written by John, and we know John is writing it to a group of people who are starting to hear a message that's actually not the gospel. They're starting to hear a message that's telling them it doesn't really matter what you do with your bodies, because really the spirit is the important thing. It doesn't matter what you do with your bodies. And so as we look at these, we're going to see three things. We're going to see how we know love, how we're freed by love, and how we respond to love. Okay, first, if you look at verses 1 and 2, I'm going to address the sin thing right up front since, since it's probably bothering some of you. If you've been a Christian for a long time in verses 1 and 2, you might not even notice that he says sin four times. And if the Bible is fairly new to you, you might be going, huh, he just said four, sin four times. I wonder if there's something to that. Or because of the cultural waters in which we swim, you might be thinking, why are these people always talking about sin? Maybe you grew up in a church where they only ever talked about sin. Or maybe you've kind of had very little connection with Christianity and your kind of outsider perspective is that church people are really concerned with sin and kind of this is, you need to do the right thing, live the right way, vote, the right, vote for the right person, stuff like that. But John is going to challenge that idea because notice what John does <clears throat> with the language that he's using. He's not just talking about a list of do's and don'ts. He's using really relational language. If you look at verses 3 through 6, we see that John mentions commandments multiple times, but it's in the context of relationship. Look at what he says. He says, we have come to know him. He says, in him. He says, abides in him. And that's not language that points us to knowledge about rules. That's language that points us to relationship with a person. And he's making a larger point here about how we relate to and how we respond to a person. And, and, and who is this person? The person's God. You might have guessed that already. And who is God? Who's God? Because we're talking about somebody who's giving us commands and rules. God is, God is love. So how do we know love? We know God. And John wants to be clear, though. He doesn't want his readers to take any of this as an excuse to sin. In fact, he pauses in the middle of his argument in verse 1 and says, I'm writing this so that you do not, so that you may not Sin, And he's not expecting perfection, because in the very next verse he says, hey, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with Jesus Christ. If you look at that second verse, John says two things about Jesus. He says he's our advocate and he's our propitiation. And those are, you know, kind of churchy words. Advocate is just a legal term, actually. And it's the idea of a defense attorney arguing a case before a judge. So if you picture a courtroom... You're standing there, and Jesus is the defense attorney in front of the judge. And to make it a little more personal, anybody here ever gotten a parking ticket in downtown Stanton? 
you know, you come back to the car and you've got the little piece of paper stuck underneath your windshield wiper and you go, oh my, I can't believe this. Those Nazis who, you know, run the parking. Gosh. But imagine now Jesus is your defense attorney. You actually decide to go to court to argue your parking ticket. Nobody does that, but just bear with me. You go to court and... <laughs> Chris Lasseter will give you advice on how to, how to argue your, your parking ticket. See, Jesus isn't just a normal defense attorney because he's not standing before the judge saying, this guy didn't do it. He's standing before the judge saying, I've already paid this guy's fine. Yes, he did this thing, but I have already paid the penalty, which means, I, which means you don't have to pay. You don't have to pay the fine. And that's what propitiation is. It's just payment on your behalf. It's sacrifice on your behalf. Behalf. So in the context of sin, Scripture tells us that we are sinners, but, that, but if, that, if we are in Christ, Christ pays the penalty for our sin. As a, as a quick aside, because I don't want, want you to be confused, there's a, there's a part there in verse, verse 2 that says, for the sins of the whole world. That doesn't mean that every single person in the world will come to know Jesus. It's actually speaking to that specific culture, because the Jews are thinking... Jesus is just the Savior for the Jews. And John here is broadening it and saying, no, Jesus is actually the Savior for all nations and all peoples. So, quick aside there by way of clarification. To go back to the courtroom, you're there, and Jesus is a pretty understanding defense attorney. He's a really nice defense attorney. And he says, hey, not only have I paid this guy's penalty, judge, this guy's probably going to do it again, so I've just, just gone ahead and set up an automatic debit from my account. And if he does it again, there's a credit on his account now. And you can just take it from there because I've given him my goodness and my perfect record. Um, you know, this is like the bishop saying, this man didn't steal the silver from me. I gave it to him. And I'm not, not only saying he can go free, I'm also going to give him these candlesticks, these silver candlesticks as well. Think about that, that courtroom scene again, because when we think of an advocate or a defense attorney, we usually think of somebody who's standing in front of the judge. And some of the language that Scripture uses gives us reason to kind of think that Jesus can be in standing in front of the judge. But Scripture also repeatedly says that Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And that's pretty significant because the positional difference is important. How did Jesus get to the right hand of God the Father? Well, God the Father put him there. And in this culture, if you're sitting at the right hand of an authority figure, that means you also have great authority and you're serving essentially as an advisor, as trusted counsel to that authority figure. That changes it, doesn't it? Instead of pleading, think about the guy sitting beside the judge leaning over and more as a confidant, hey, I've paid this guy's penalty. He's free to go. One commentator says, Jesus does not extort 
a favorable verdict from a reluctant judge. His presence is advocacy enough. So how do we know love? We know love because Jesus died for us, gave us his perfect record, and even now is at work interceding for us when we do sin. So how are we freed by love? That's how we know love, how are we freed by love? We're just going to look at one way this morning. We are freed by love. And this is tremendous. We are freed by love because love crushes our guilt. Because love crushes our guilt. Tim Keller, who's a pastor up in New York City, observes this. He says our culture kind of has two ways of dealing with guilt. And probably most of us fit in one of these two camps. We either deal deal with guilt by just saying, hey, I'm actually not guilty. You might say, I did something wrong, but you're putting that on me. How dare you put that on me? I didn't. I, yes, I spoke negatively to someone, but I was just telling them the truth. They're just being too sensitive. Or, you know, you cheat on your taxes or you cheat on a test or something like that. Hey, the teacher is actually being stingy with points. She's actually the, he's actually the one being stingy. I'm, I'm okay. So we can deny that we did something wrong. That's one way. Or we can say, um, hey, I'm just going to pay that debt. Okay? I did something wrong. I'm going to work it off. I'm going to make it up to that person. I stabbed my buddy in the back at work. I'm going to buy him lunch. I'll pay that off. That makes up for that, right? Um, I cheated on my taxes. I'll make it up next year. The difficulty with that is you still have to look at yourself in the mirror and go, I'm still the type of person who doesn't treat people well. I'm still the type of person who's actually not honest. But maybe those aren't great examples. Maybe you're, you're, you're pretty good in those areas. But what if, you know, what if you've got something from like 10, 20 years ago that you can't make right, that you've done something and there's no way to make it up to that person, there's no way you can pay off your debt, and you know, I, I, did, I did that thing, and there's no way that you can, that you can resolve it. Well, the Bible tells us two things about guilt. One, the Bible tells us that it's real. That's why we feel guilty, because we are. But two, it tells us that there is a real enemy, Satan, who is accusing us of what we did. So think about this. Go back to that courtroom scene. If you're a Christian... If you're a Christian, Jesus is there, and he's, he's defending you, and Satan is the prosecuting attorney, and he is standing there, pointing at you, and he's saying, this person is guilty, this person deserves a life sentence, this person deserves the death penalty, this person deserves heavy fines. And Jesus leans over to the judge, and he whispers, This prosecutor has no case. I've paid this person's penalty already. My blood covers his his sin, and I've given him my perfect record. And this is the beautiful part. Justice demands that he go free because this this person has been paid for. Justice demands that he, he goes free. We read a couple weeks ago in 1 John that Jesus says, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is not just an abstraction. 
We, we act out this reality every single Sunday in a beautiful way. When we confess our sins to God, as soon as I'm done preaching this sermon, we're going to confess our sins to God. For some of you, that might be intimidating. But it's actually a beautiful thing. Because when we come and we tell the truth about ourselves, we're not met with condemnation. We're met with a loving Father who says, your sins are forgiven. Those are beautiful words. To tell the truth about yourself and to tell the truth about yourself to another person because you're wrong other people also. And then instead of hearing condemnation, we hear, in Christ, your sins are forgiven. And then we're invited to sit down at a meal and eat bread and drink wine, which is crazy. The person we've just offended. Have my wine. That's crazy. Third, we're freed to respond. So how do we know love? Because God is love, and we see how God in Jesus lived that out for us. We're freed from our guilt, and we're freed to respond. In fact, we're more than freed to respond Love actually compels us to respond. Look at verse 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The order of events is really, really important here because this doesn't say, listen, listen really closely, This does not say, if you keep my commandments, I will love you. Some of us probably grew up like that. We experienced it with our parents. Maybe we experienced it with our churches. I'm only accepted if I do certain things. If we say God is love, and then he says, I only love you if you do certain things, The idea that God is love rings hollow. I mean, big deal. If God only loves me because I do certain things, like, doesn't that characterize the vast majority of our relationships? Like, what's the big deal about God if that's the case? That's just a transactional relationship. But God says, I loved you before you loved me. Romans 5.8 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, and it says this, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. While we were running away with the bag of silver, Christ died for us. If, If coming to church is a hard thing for you, my guess is it probably is for, for a lot of us. If it's a hard thing for you because you go, my life, my life is really messy. Christ died for you because your life is a mess. And the messiness of your life doesn't surprise him at all. And when I say a mess, I don't mean just like somebody can look at you and go, that person is a mess. Because most of us, if you look around, we can go, okay. Don't look inside my minivan, by the way. <clears throat> um, if you say, if we, if we look around, we can go like, hey, these people look like they've kind of got their stuff together. Um, 
But we, we know our own hearts. We know, we know the hate in our own hearts. We know the pride in our own hearts. We know the greed, the envy, the jealousy in our own hearts. And Jesus knows that also. And no matter what you look, on the, look like on the outside, pretty clean, everybody looks pretty nice today. No matter what you look like on the outside, Jesus sees the messiness in your heart and says, I died for that. I knew that messiness was there. I knew that you were con- going to continue to be messy, and I still, I still gave myself for you. I still love you. So how do we respond to this kind of love? We, we respond like Valjean did. We respond with love. We turn and things start to change. And John kind of lays out kind of a simple test for us. In verses 3 through 6, he says, Hey, do you want to know if you've really encountered Jesus, if you really have encountered the love of Jesus? The simple test is this. When he asks you to do something, do you do it? Now pause right there. I want to emphasize, John understands none of us do that perfectly. And when he's talking about obedience here, he's not talking about perfect obedience. If any of us could obey perfectly, Christ wouldn't have had to die. But he's talking about, or let, me, let me put state it negatively, for the Christian, the Christian life should not be marked by sin. Every Christian has sin in his or her life, but the characterizing feature of our lives as Christians should not be sin. Jesus isn't talking about uh, legalism. He's not talking about the type of moral rectitude that you might have grown up with. He's talk- One scholar puts it this way. He says, obedience is the full flowering of our love for him. And when you love someone, you delight to delight them. Our motivation changes. Our actions might stay the same. Maybe you had really good actions before you became a Christian, but your motivations change. You go from, I'm doing these good things because of duty, to I'm doing these good things because of love. Let me put this in terms probably a lot of us might be able to understand. Have you ever been madly in love with someone? I mean, like, over the top, you can't sleep at night, butterflies in the stomach, like, palms are sweaty, like, kind of, you feel a little stupid. Um, but, but that person, like, you delight to delight them. And if, you know, if that's actually returns to you, like it's not unrequited love, to quote Shakespeare, if it's not unrequited love, ah, like that's crazy. It's like this negative feedback loop of trying to outdo the other person, positive feedback loop, excuse me. Um, and you might, you might brown bag it every day for lunch to save money, but all of a sudden, man, I'm going to spend $75 to take this person out to dinner. Or maybe you hate hiking and this person loves hiking and you're like, you know what, I'm going to strap on the hiking boots because I love this person and this person loves me and I, I want to delight them. I want to do this thing that delights them. But our problem is we often don't see God's love. We expect God's love to manifest itself. This is so true for Westerners, for Americans, because we expect a comfortable life. We expect to have the job we want, the relationship we want. But God says, the primary way I've shown you my love is through my son. <clears throat> so 
So an obvious question here is, if you're in a place, whether you're a Christian or not, and you're kind of going, man, I just, my life really is characterized by, by sin. I don't care at all about pleasing God or delighting God. Then, then my question would be, how well do you know the Son? And this is a beautiful thing. When you read the Gospels, look at what Jesus does and look at what he says. Because when you read the Gospels, and here's what I would encourage you to do. If you're in that place where you're like, man, I don't even care about pleasing God, just go read John, the book of John. And look at what Jesus does and look at what he says. Because, because Jesus, he heals, he cures the sick, the lame, the blind, he even cures the dead. He sees the physical suffering of people. He, he sees the emotional suffering of people. He sees the psychological suffering of people. And he enters into it. This is crazy. He sees prostitutes. He sees tax collectors, thieving tax collectors. And he enters into relationship with them. He shows them love. He is the bishop who is confronted face-to-face with a thief and instead of condemning, gives him the silver. And when you see love like that, it starts to change us. It changed Valjean. And, and so here's my invitation and God's invitation to you. Just, just encounter the Son. Just read John and see what Jesus does. Soak in the love of God. You know, bask in his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his grace, his sacrifice for us. And when we start to see those things, our allegiance changes and our responsiveness to his commands becomes joy instead of duty because we're responding to love. We're not responding to a taskmaster. We're responding to love. And what's this love like? It's, it's a love that calls us to obedience but not obedience to an exacting foreman. This is what that love is like. It's love that leaves the 99 sheep and pursues the one lost sheep. It's love that sees your weariness and says, Come, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's love that sees your thirst and says, come to me and drink. It's love that sees you searching for life and says, I am life. Just abide in me and I will give you life. And it's love that sees your sin, the past sin, the present sin, and the future sin. And it says to the accuser, I love this person. I've paid for this person. And she is guiltless. And it's love that looks at us, that looks at the thief in the eye, and says, I love you, I paid for you, your slate is clean, and by the way, I want you to have these candlesticks. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that you would, that you would be present in our lives, and that as we read your word, as we experience love lived out, as we experience forgiveness lived out in the next few moments, as we come to the Lord's table together, that you would change us. Thank you, Father, that you are not 
an exacting taskmaster. But you are the servant. You are the good shepherd who gives your life up for the sheep. I pray, Father, that we would live lives in obedience to you and out of response to that excessive, reckless love that you show us. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.